Hi, I'm Allison Hare, a former corporate executive on a quest to live, work, and play in full alignment and helping you live big and bold without the burnout. Welcome to the Late Learner Podcast, where here we love to break old, tired conventions and find fresh and modern approaches that just work better for you. So what are we late learning today? Well, nobody likes flat out rejection, right? I mean, it's kind of part of life, but you know, you're turned down for a job, you're denied for a date, all that stuff is obvious. But what about micro rejections? You know, that time when your friends went on that vacation, you found out about it later, realized you weren't invited. Oh, that one hurts, right? Or somebody takes three weeks to respond to your text and they're like, oh, I just saw this. And you're like, I didn't send it through a carrier pigeon. (laughs) It's a text. (laughs) And your phone is glued to your hand. WTF. Or maybe you are at your favorite coffee shop and the barista seems a little snippy today. And so you automatically assume, well, they clearly hate me. You know, I could go on and on, right? Like there are micro rejections that we have. And it turns out that there are physiological and psychological reasons for why this hurts so badly, especially when compounded over a lifetime. And more specifically, for those who have ADHD, it's called rejection sensitivity dysphoria. And today we are talking to licensed counselor and ADHD specialist, Candon Phillips. And she's also the founder of a very popular group called the Humanity Hive. Personally, this kind of rejection, this is something I've really struggled with, and it's gotten so much more intense, which is why I am so grateful I have this podcast where I can invite experts and we can solve the damn problem for you and for me. So um, thank God you found me. Candon Phillips is going to change everything for you. We're going to break down what it is, why it's happening, and how to help manage and process our responses so much better. And before we get to our chat with Candon, let's get to the good stuff. What is stuff? It's the surprisingly true useful fun fact. And today's study comes from NYU's Tandon School of Engineering. And what they discovered that is that everyday pleasures like listening to music or sipping a cup of coffee can elevate your brain activity, which helps you with concentration and memory. This, in my mind, kind of fits in the no shit category, but let's go with it. And in the study, they found slightly positive effects from a pleasant fragrance. So while I can't help you with coffee and fragrance through an audio format, I can give you permission to go light a candle and go get a cup of joe. And I can also help you with a little music. So you are completely focused on today's episode. Now here's our chat with Candon Phillips about rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Okay, so I feel like a little bit of a fangirl because I was recommended emphatically from a very trusted source to connect with Candon Phillips, who is the founder of Humanity Hive Online. And I am just spinning just going down a rabbit hole of simply your Instagram account and how powerful and impactful it is. Welcome, Candid. I'm so glad that you're here. 
Thank you. I'm glad we were able to make this work. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. And I think it's funny as a side note, Kendon is not only pregnant, she's going to have a baby in a week, but she is recording this in a hospital, has a microphone, (laughs) a pop filter, headphones. She's like ready. (laughs) I came prepared. I never knew what was going to happen. So I was like, yeah, podcast. Sure. What else am I going to be doing? (laughs) I love it. So today we're talking about, um, we're talking specifically around rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria. Can you define mm. it for me, please? Yeah. So it's it's well-named. Dysphoria actually translates into too much to bear. So what we're talking about is the fact that we are unable to bear rejection like other people. Um, and this can play out into extreme avoidance of things. And especially if they're things that might cause that might be failure or judgment involved or embarrassment. Um, if we feel like we're not going to be the best or we're not meeting expectations or measuring up, there can be a whole lot of rumination involved over things that we've experienced past or present. Um, a lot of intense emotions and everyone can express them a little bit differently. You can have some that go into kind of a rage mode um, and those that get really pulled back and, and very anxious. Um and there's a lot of worrying that there is there are assumptions being made about how people are viewing us, how we're being perceived, how we're being judged, all of that. Um, so it is it's very consuming. And for those that experience it, it, it usually has a hand in the majority of how they kind of approach the world. It's so interesting as you talk about like the emotional intensity of what that looks like. And just to kind of give some background on this, that I was recently diagnosed with ADHD. And I thought I was like, just a a little bit, right? Just a little (laughs) bit. I've managed a lot of it. And I was diagnosed through my daughter. And what's interesting about this is that I feel rejection so intensely that I just assumed everybody else felt it, maybe not as intensely, but we're just kind of shoving it under the rug. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize this is a common trait of ADHD and that 98% of people who are diagnosed with ADHD experience this at one point or another, some to more intensity. Can you explain the science behind that? And is this something that neurotypical people feel as well? So I'll, I'll I'll do my best to kind of talk around the science of it. And admittedly, I don't know that we have it pinpointed as, as to why exactly this presence is so high for this particular kind of characteristic. You know, it it's present in other diagnoses as well. And I think because of its presence, it sometimes leads to a misdiagnosis. And the more they look at it, you know, yeah, it says 98% of us experience it. And I think even recently I heard a psychiatrist say like, Actually, it's across the board. If you have ADHD, you have RSD. It just may be at a different intensity or it may present differently. But what we do know is that those with ADHD, we experience emotions more intensely. And so if we know that that's already experience that we have, I don't ever explain this science part quite as well as my my psychiatrist friend does, Mm -hmm. but they're able to even see in, in our brains now that like our shock absorbers, our myelin sheaths in our brain are not as thick and are are not as absorbent when we experience an intense emotion. So someone without ADHD, their brain actually has more of kind of an absorber for an emotion. So they don't go from zero to a hundred 
in two seconds. Whereas we don't have that kind of literally like shock absorber. We go right there every time. So if we know that we experience all emotions intensely, then rejection is going to be one of those. And then you come into play with the fact that if you've got ADHD, you already are functioning in a world that's really not designed for you. So you feel like you're trying to work harder to meet expectations to please others anyway. And then, especially when we're looking at like adults our age, ADHD wasn't really a thing when we were kids. And it definitely wasn't for women or girls. And so the expectations were harsh. And so people pleasing, masking, trying to fit into the box, that's what we did to to get by. And so not measuring up is a big deal. And I want to rewind this. I want to talk about women and ADHD and what I'm finding. So what the statistics are showing right now is that there is medication, ADHD medication shortage. More people mm-hmm. are being diagnosed. But like you said, uh, Candon, when we were younger, the only testing was done on boys. It was not mm-hmm. tested on girls at all. And the Mm -hmm. assumption for boys was that if you had a disruptive kid that couldn't sit still and was kind of climbing up the walls, that was ADHD. It was really just the hyperactive part, maybe an attention because they were all over the place. But women were not even part of the equation. So what Mm -hmm. is happening now? Why are women being diagnosed now? What's happening? Yeah. I think science is catching up, thankfully, and it's still painfully behind, but I I think social media and it's had a good role and it's had a bad role in ADHD. (laughs) It's had the the bad role in in making it seem like every, it's something that everybody has a little bit and it's not always correctly talked about, but the good side of it is that those that are clinically talking about it, there's a lot of advocating and kind of putting a spotlight on the diagnostic manual and those that, that put that together to like get their shit together and make sure we get the criteria correct because we've we've missed a whole massive population of people that have this um so science is catching up i think advocating and speaking up and realizing this is what it it can look like this and this and this like it's it's very much a spectrum it's not just the hyperactive and it's not just inattentive and it's not just boys that are hyperactive or just girls that are inattentive and so the more that that awareness has grown We've got this influx of adults that are that are getting diagnosed and realizing, like, I've been struggling my whole life, and this is actually what it is. Wow. The statistics show that 10% of adults have ADHD diagnosed, mm-hmm. 10% of children. Do you feel like that number is actually much higher? Oh, massively, yeah. You do? <laughs> um, I do, because that's diagnosed. And what we know is there's... In the United States, there's a, a shortage of, of psychiatrists. There's a shortage of, of therapists, mental health professionals. The access that people have to get properly diagnosed is, is low. I hear from a lot of people that they either can't, they can't afford to travel to get somewhere to get properly diagnosed. The doctors that they're interacting with are not properly educated. They're old school minded, so they're not even considering them. There's a lot of barriers that are that are still occurring that are keeping proper diagnosis low. And we could go into even racial disparities and and all kinds of things that that would even misdiagnose someone. And that seems kind of bleak. How do we (laughs) like, is there a way? 
And I know that you offer a ton of resources around this of like finding a practitioner. I've done a podcast episode. It was actually earlier this year and it was such a different conversation that was so much more compassionate, so much more understanding. And I, I think what, and so many people were listening going, I definitely have ADHD. I definitely have it. You know, like they're, I, I don't want right. you to diagnose uh, from my podcast, right. but you know, <laughs> I wonder what happens. Like if you, if you are looking for some resources, is it important to test? Is it important to know for sure? Yeah. You'd probably get different answers from depending on the clinician you talk to. I think it's important to know because otherwise you're stuck in this the shame spiral of I'm mm. just lazy. I just need to get it together, work harder, try harder, whatever. So I think knowing and getting the proper education about it can do a whole lot in breaking that shame. The earlier, the better. I mean, breaking that shame language in a child so they don't turn into an adult who's having to to figure it out is important. So not that self-diagnosis isn't isn't valid to a degree. There's obvious people that just can't access care. And so researching the hell out of everything and kind of figuring out that this is probably what they're dealing with. But yeah, it's still it's still very valid to get a clinical perspective. And then that is what will hopefully open the door for proper treatment, proper medication, insurance support. Coming down the pipeline, they're about to roll out actual diagnostic criteria for adults because in the DSM, it's written for a child and we keep trying to apply hmm children criteria on adults. And so they're really trying to get a handle on proper language and, and diagnosing and assessing of adults, which means that that could then lead to disability support, recognition at work, all those kind of things that are crucial. One of the things that I heard you talk about in a different podcast that I was blown away when it was explained this way, and just to give you and potentially my listeners, if you're new to me, I worked in a corporate career for over 20 years. I was in software sales. So I worked for some of the biggest fortune 500 companies in the world. And last year I was unbelievably burnt out and left. I didn't have a plan. I knew I had a lot of skill sets, a lot of passions and talents. And I was like, let me just bet on myself and make a run at it and figure it out. And that's what I'm doing. And so when you started to explain the overcompensating that happens. And when I did uh, some homework on this, there are typically three ways that people accommodate for rejection sensitivity. And that looks like people pleasing is one. The second one is to stop trying. Like, I'm just not going to try. I don't want people to see me fail. And the third one is to adapt and overachieve. And that one, like I zeroed all the way in on. I'm like, (laughs) that's me. That's me. So what does that look like? This masking, what does that look like? Whether it's diagnosed, undiagnosed, how does that present? Everyone's going to do it a little bit differently, but masking, people pleasing, and even that overachieving, it all kind of just rolls into this one (laughs) personality almost. But there is this such an intense desire to avoid criticism, disappointment, not measuring up. And even not even that, like it can go to the extreme of the overachiever of I must be the best. And if I am not the best, I have no value or worth. What's the point of me Mm. being here? It's either like the best or the worst. And so you get into this performance pattern of like measuring yourself up against 
not just like one person, like you're trying to be everybody and one human (laughs) and that's impossible. Um, And so you're going above and beyond. And because we do have a lot of strengths and capabilities with our ADHD brain, our above and beyond is like 150%, but we still keep thinking we're just like same level as everybody else. And when we come down from Mm. that, it can feel like we're really doing nothing. Like we're really just failing. And we've kind of just come down to where everybody else is functioning. And when you're functioning at that level, you're keeping yourself in such a, a high intensity state, a high, it's even more than dopamine state. You are, it's a high level of stress. So coming off of that, it's it's different from just a regular burnout. Like your whole system, nervous system is just plummeted. It can take a long time to to recover from that because what goes up must come down. And for us, both of those are extreme intensity. So we're going way high and we're coming way low. That's a very scary place for someone to move out of because moving out of that means showing up as a human. I'm going to admit that I made a mistake. I'm going to let myself say, I don't know. I'm going to rest. I'm going to give myself permission to not go balls to the wall, to just like do it at an acceptable pace or, or level or intensity or whatever. And when you haven't done that and haven't even grown up feeling like that's okay, it's terrifying. Hey, it's Allison. Thanks for listening. Did you know that the ideas shared on this show is something I can help you implement in your own life? Imagine having someone in your corner who is there to help you prioritize your passions, your purpose, your presence. Imagine being present more often. Now, if you feel like I'm talking right to you, I invite you to schedule a free breakthrough call with me. You can book at allisonhair.com forward slash schedule. But I would love for you to take this time to answer that knock that's been banging on your door for a little too long. You'll be so glad you did. This is like, I'm leaning all the way in going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I check all those boxes. And I know a lot of my listeners are over-functioning mothers. They, uh, a, mm-hmm. a lot of them are over-functioning. They're high-performing moms. Mm-hmm. And so I keep thinking of all the layers. And I'd love to get your perspective on this, Kendon, is like there are layers of performing as a, a woman, right? Like when mm-hmm. you work oh, in, yeah. a, in a high executive level position and you have worked your whole way up and that you're proving, 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 proving. I belong here. I belong here. I'm better than. And so you're always in the state and then, you know, like I'm in my 40s, I'm in my late mm-hmm. later 40s. So I'm in perimenopause or and then mm-hmm. menopause. So there's like hormones on top of that, too. So I'm trying to figure out what the fuck are all these, <laughs> you know, these emotions, <laughs> but also like just the energy burn of like, there are some things that at this age, you just don't give a shit about anymore. And that's okay. You right. know, and then some just ratchets up. And so for me, like leaving my job, it feels like that mask There's so many masks that have just come off, come off, come Mm -hmm. off. And it feels like Mm -hmm. an open wound all the time. I wonder how do you kind of factor in, in the lens of the culture and ADHD, how do all of those wrapped up present themselves and then end up in many cases or heading very quickly towards burnout? Everything you said is incredibly common and I see it. I've seen it in in patients when I was actually in office and and clients that I work with now where we're just doing mainly coaching. 
And those are the men. I love working with those women, those overachieving. I've, Why? I've Why do you gotten love working there with and them? done all the things? Uh, I probably connect with them a whole lot. So it's easy for me to tap into and pinpoint where their struggles might be. Cause it's something like I've walked that journey and I still have to check myself on it a whole lot because I, I myself moved out of a higher position, moved myself up, got to, to the level where I could go and, and stayed because of that versus staying for me and then had to walk that down into doing less. And I consistently check myself because I will say yes to everything and start trying to climb an invisible ladder again. And I'm like, damn it. No, like that's not even what I really want. That's not my value. And that's something I talk about a lot when, I, when I'm talking about ADHD, especially with those overachievers, because They've lived a life and there's people pleasers masking any of that. And it, it can be over-functioning or under, but either way, you're living with a mirror facing out. What do you need from me? What do you want from me? How do I please you? What puts mm. me in favorability? What keeps me from being seen as human, which means mistakes? Like how do I hide all the things, but also look put together? And that means you have not turned that mirror in and you have no idea what your own values are. What do I care about? What do I want? What's good for me? What brings me joy? What do I not care about? Am I doing something just because I'm good at it? Do I even like this thing? We usually don't know those because it wasn't really safe for us to do that. Surviving meant outward facing, not inward facing. And so that journey is, again, a scary one, but I think a necessary one to start breaking down that, that behavior. See, I this is now my therapy session. I'll have you know, Candon, I'll just lay down. <laughs> but <laughs> thank you. Um, but I, you know, like I, I now have stepped out. I've stepped off to off of the hamster wheel, right? And mm -hmm. have the space and time and have access to people like you who can help process this stuff. But when you're in that over-functioning space where it feels the survival, the practical, the practicality of like, I need to earn a living. And mm -hmm. I decided I was going to be a lawyer at 18. And now I'm in my 40s. And I'm like, I, I don't even like this. But what am I going to do? Quit and right. just live on a beach somewhere? I have this big life and this big house and kids in private right. school. And I really enjoy that. And so I wonder, like, how do you begin to turn that mirror inside when there are, it feels like so much is riding on the line? Yeah, that's hard. And so the value work piece of it is really sitting down and there's like, there's free personal value tests all over the internet. There's, there's an access to one that I provide. It's kind of got a whole journal to work through a therapist, a coach can help you do that too. But really knowing what is important to you in all areas of your life, not just one. Because if I know that the only thing I really value is work stuff, every time I make a work decision, that's trickling down and affecting all the other areas of my life. But I have no idea what those values are. And I can't figure mm. out why I'm out of sync because I'm just, I know this value, but I don't know any of the others. And so really learning how those measure up. And when you're making decisions, transitions, changes, whatever, and you look at those and go, okay. My value is for me, something I had to consider was I really wanted more time with my son. If I make this decision to accept this position with the clout, the money, everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's Candon. Is that going to take away from that value that is really higher than this one, but I'm just distracted by the clout and the glory of this one? Mm. Yeah, that's going to completely throw that out of sync. And six months down the road, I'm going to be bitter and sad again because I'm missing out on this one. 
because I didn't keep it in check. And so that's an important piece. One, and then it's like, it's like taking the baby steps because people are terrified and it's usually... It's the white knuckle gotta, approach. <laughs> you know, it's like the it white is. knuckle ride. It is. And you got to start saying, I don't know the answer to that. I've got to admit that I'm not all knowing or I'm late on that. I forgot. Like, oh my God, you've got to not come up with the excuse and the justification. You've got to get a little bit more honest and whew, it's terrifying because all of a sudden you're showing yourself and that means you're going to face surprise, maybe even expectations of who you are and how you function of like, wait, you don't make mistakes. You don't ask for time off. You don't whatever. It's like, no, I do. I'm a human. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I just haven't been. That also sounds like setting proper boundaries too, as you kind of get clearer on your values. Which is hard because setting boundaries is not comfortable and you don't just set the boundary, you then have to maintain it. And that's like, ooh, anxiety inducing. Like I could sweat through my shirt right now because <laughs> that means every time it's pushed, I have got to be able to go, no, no, no which is the opposite of people pleasing, masking, achieving, like all the things that goes against how most people have functioned their entire lives. So it's, it's a massive shift. It actually sounds empowering that when you take those little baby steps, it sounds like I think about breaking up with a friend, for instance, like mm -hmm. the thought of actually doing that on out loud, I am like freaking out. But if there right. is a way to do it in a way that honors your value, respects the other person, and mm -hmm. is able to kind of open doors elsewhere, there's like an empowering feeling in that. And when I think about the rejection sensitivity, and I think about the values, like there has to be some kind of empowerment or like almost like the dopamine mm -hmm. of, I did this for myself. So is there a flip in the dopamine? What do you call it? The dopamine diet? Can you explain yeah. the dopamine diet? Can Is this what it means? Can it be applied in a situation like this as you begin to set boundaries for yourself and really establish yeah. your values? Yeah. So dopamine diet, I wouldn't necessarily say like it's chain linked connection to rejection sensitivity. That's a, that's a big way for us to manage our day-to-day -day functioning. A lot of time is really knowing how to pay attention to when we naturally have dopamine peaks is that at certain times of our day, certain times of our week, certain activities that give it to us, ways that we can work with that and, and schedule our days knowing that like my morning and my, my work is going to get me really high on the dopamine. Like I love it. It's intense. It gives me everything. I'm going to come down off of that. So my afternoons are going to have a crash. How do I manage that? What little pieces of dopamine can I give in? What permission do I need to give myself to just go, it's okay that I'm tired? It's okay that I need to rest. I had a very intense, you know, morning or day or whatever. So I think what you could pay attention to if you're wanting to connect the two of those is recognizing when you set that boundary, documenting that somewhere. Because we are going to forget the good things. Our brains are not going to automatically pull that up. We're going to always, especially with RSD, pull up all the negative things and the scary bits about setting that boundary or making that change. So we need visual reminders. We need something that we can access and go, no, this is how this really made me feel. And this is what it opened up for me. And this is what it gave me room to be and to do. Scary, yes. Anxiety in the middle of it, probably so. Worth it, absolutely. Hmm. So I think you had talked about when you are feeling in a state of rejection 
And Mm -hmm. usually that looks like zero to 60 on the emotional scale where it's almost like your body can seize up and it's like an all consuming thoughts of Mm -hmm. like, that person doesn't like me. What does this mean? Am I going to be, is, is the way I show up at school, pick up my kids going to be different or our friendship's not going to be the same or, or I'm never going to get that job I want, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you handle when you're in the throes of that? I, I think you have an acronym called PETS. And you could look around and we all probably have a little acronym of, of what we call it, but it it touches on, on the intense emotion piece of it, which is really what makes it so mm-hmm. awful to experience. And so PETS essentially is pause, evidence, talk, and shift. And so if we're trying to address the feelings of it, pausing is incredibly important and incredibly hard for us to do in that moment. Because impulsivity is common of ADHD, impulsivity. It's incredibly common, right. And especially when the stakes are high and the emotions are high, we want to be done with it. So we want to impulsively act. We want to respond. We want to justify, explain, fix it, stick it under the rug, whatever it is. We want that feeling of rejection to go away, which is why we work so hard at pulling away or pushing people away because we just can't handle it either way. A lot of times we're not great at identifying a shift in our body. So a lot of people would be like, if you're experiencing intense emotion, anxiety, anger, you're going to, you're probably going to get tense or your body's going to get flushed or you might sweat or you might feel this physical shift. And for an ADHD person, we already, many of us function already kind of that intense state and our body awareness isn't great. So we may not notice it in us, Hmm. but it's great to be aware outside what situations, people, words, interactions tend to put me there. Then I can be mindful of that going in. So for example, let's say if a teacher called me and said my son did something wrong or had a behavior protective in me is going to like, whoop, nope, we're going to push really hard. I would not notice that shift in me, but I would go, Ooh, wait a minute. This is not an email I need to respond to. <laughs> I need to give it 24 hours Hold. because I'm in, I'm in the intense emotion place because I'm aware of the trigger. I'm aware of the situation. I would not have picked up on, on myself yet. I would have already sent the email and later been like, damn, my body was escalated because now I'm coming down and I can feel the come down. Awareness is important for you to be able to take that pause. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the point where you can start recognizing the physical and mental sides changes in yourself. So for me, I find awareness outside of yourself first will then start helping you be more aware of inside. And pausing is, it looks different for everyone and people can really struggle with that. It just gives you a minute to step away and regulate. And that can look completely different for everybody. If that means you're the person that likes to do the breaths, go do the breath. If you like to, if you need to like stomp and like close the door and like move your body and do something intense to get it out, do that. If you need to talk to yourself, if you need to tap into somebody who you know would give you truth and feedback in that moment of what you need to hear, pausing is literally just giving yourself a moment to process the feeling and not react because reacting is where we tend to get in trouble. And you can set the rules for yourself around that. If I get a text from this person or this situation, I am not allowed to respond for 12 hours, 24 hours. (laughs) If my kid's doing this thing, I am not allowed to like, keep speaking. I need to go into the other room and like say all the things I want to say that I I can't say to my kid and like get it out, reset and come back, whatever those kind of rules are. And then you got to check for evidence because when we're talking about RSD, it's often a liar and we can 
go into the spiral of believing assumptions and generalizations and this person must be mad at me because of this. I'm too much. I'm too much. I mean, we, we start going into a lot of assumptions, fortune telling kind of stuff. And we have to pause and go, where is the evidence outside of my brain and my physical feeling right now that this is true? Did they actually say this? Did this thing actually occur? Like, what do I have to back this up? And again, it's great if you've got a person that's that you know is going to call you out either way <laughs> to go, okay, help me process this because I am stuck in my filter of this and it it may not be true. And then talking about it, like I keep saying, if you've got somebody, we can ruminate and things can get really stuck in our heads. Mm-hmm. And if we don't get that out, it's going to continue. And Writing can be good, absolutely, but I encourage talk to yourself. If there's not someone there, there is a strong connection between speaking out what is in our mind to help us process it better and get it out of our heads. But again, other people are like, no, for me, it's journaling. Whatever it is, just thinking about it isn't going to be enough. You're not going to start seeing those other pieces better until you get it out of yourself. And then the S is now shifting. And this is this can be really hard. You've done these things and you've got to go, okay. I've got to shift to the next thing. I can't sit here on this couch and and ruminate and feel stuck in the anxiety this entire time. Like it's time to shift on to the next thing and the clock will run out. I gave myself a 12 hour rule that I could respond to that email in 12 hours. Okay. We've got to kind of shift on to the next thing and refocus. And the steps sound easy when you talk about it in the moment. We know it's very hard, but they can be helpful. I'm thinking about all of those things because I think I've experienced a lot of them this week. And I, I am actually on day three of trying an ADHD medicine and it is working beautifully, beautifully. Wonderful. And yeah. so I'm, I'm testing. I don't know. I, I'm, right. I'm very happy so far, but good Lord, the roller coaster has been insane. And again, I don't know if it is the mask coming off where I just can no longer hide it because in previous years, I don't know if it's masking, but it always has been like, I know this hurts, but I'm not going to take it personally and I could move on. Mm-hmm. And and now it's like, <laughs> and now it feels like a kick in the gut. And I'm like, why is this happening now? Yeah. And I think it is just a truth among yourself or truth with yourself. And when you're in that state of just like your whole body seizes and you can't stop thinking about it, it sucks. It really does. It, it's all consuming. You know, I think a lot of people will even say after their diagnosis, they feel like their ADHD got worse. When in reality, it's not like the, the, the symptoms all of a sudden got worse, unless you're doing some kind of hormonal shift or there's an extra stressor in yeah. life or whatever. But it's all of a sudden the awareness of it. Mm-hmm. I am now aware that all of these things are this. All of these things are coming back to this. So you can feel very exposed and very vulnerable and uh, probably feel the need to start fixing all of them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Oh my gosh, is this what everyone's been dealing with with me? You know, I do all these things. And so I think for a bit, especially for a new diagnosis, that RSD can can feel higher because your awareness of some of these things has opened up a bit more. And now you're like trying to work on it and all the things. And so there's also, there's... A medicine out there that actually helps with rejection sensitivity. So for those that are open to it, you know, you've got your standard ADHD meds, your stimulants, or your non-stimulants. We all 
interact with those differently, which can be very helpful. They can kind of, they can help with some of the emotional pieces, but they've also found that there are two medicines that are not a stimulant med. One is guanfacine and one is clonidine. Guanfacine was, um, I think actually it's called Intuniv, a non-stimulant med. And um, clonidine, if I'm thinking correctly, is actually for blood pressure. But what they have found that it can reduce the intensity of RSD by like 60%. Wow. That it's, it's described as like, it's almost like putting on an armor of protection. And so when it comes, it just doesn't penetrate you, cut you wide open. Like you've got a little bit of a protection there. And there are some people that, that pair it with their regular ADHD meds. It's, it's incredibly common. And there are some that like, maybe they can't do the ADHD typical meds or they just, they don't struggle as much with that piece, but man, the RSD is really what's dragging them down and, and that's what they take. So those are incredibly beneficial. That's so helpful. And I'm I'm wondering about you because you found out about your ADHD well into your practice, right? You were a grown ass adult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was, I would say very casually diagnosed in college, but that meant absolutely nothing. There was not a conversation to be had. Um, it was, I was given a non-stimulant med and then into my practice, I knew I had it. But again, like it was just ADHD to me, quote unquote, not a big deal, whatever. And I started deep diving on it because I realized the kids and the students I were work, I was working with, we were treating not efficiently because we were putting behaviors in the wrong boxes. And I was, I was making all the connections of like, no, this kid has ADHD and this is what it actually is. And my mind was blown and I did the whole, you know, deep dive hyper-focus and realized it in myself, what all of these things were. So I shifted my approach to trying to, to treat myself and yeah. And it's that literally blossomed into me being here today. It's wild. I wonder about you personally, when you are feeling that rejection, do you have a process that really, really helps you? Let me think for a minute of, of what I actually do, because even though I educate on it and train on it, I'm human. So I will still go into the unhealthy spiral on the phone. I'll still do the mm-hmm. things that that we know aren't helpful. I do have probably two people that I call my truth person, which is a fabulous tool for I think anybody, especially in a relationship, kind of having an open conversation of like, for my husband, for example, clearly we got married. So the expectation is that we would be honest with each other. Like we'd have open communication, we'd be healthy, but an RSD brain is going to combat that. So he may be like, yeah, I'm fine. And my brain's going, he's mad at me. He's angry at me. I've done something wrong. I need to fix it. Mm. Nothing's fine. I don't believe you, even though you're an honest person. So we have the outright conversation. Hey, my brain wants to argue with every true thing you tell me and tell me it's a lie and put me in a very anxious spot. Can we like have a verbal agreement to be each other's truth person? If I ask you a question, you are going to give me an honest response, even if it's not going to be something I want to hear. And if it's not something you're ready to discuss, you'll at least say, yeah, I'm not okay with that, but I'm not ready to discuss it so that I can start using that to fight back against my brain when it wants to tell me otherwise. And I'll do the same for you. And I, I have a friend that's that we've we've kind of had that same agreement. And that's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Because I love a truth person. A that's, truth I person. I love the agreement. Yeah. You've put it out there. You've yeah. said it. You've agreed it. So that that that's a, a good one for me because when I get in those moments, I can go to those people and immediately go, Okay, I need to process a thing. And like I know that if I'm spiraling or if I'm in that moment of like living in things that are not evidential. <laughs> There's no facts to back it up. 
they can pull me out. Pausing is, has been a big one. And for me, I like pairing something of, of bilateral stimulation with affirmations is not the word. It's really, it's really a, a, a truth statement that I can grab onto. So like a mantra, what is a um, bilateral stimulation? What is stimulation? That like? So bilateral stimulation is I learned it when I was, I was trained in, in EMDR, uh, a therapy mm-hmm. approach, and this is kind of a, a basic piece pulled out of it. But bilateral stimulation is literally activating the left and the right side of our brains by activating the left and right side of our body. So Walking is bilateral simulation. You're left, right, left, right. And you can do it seated. So I, if I could be sitting right here and you would know that I'm tapping my feet up and down or I'm tapping my hands on my legs or squeezing my fists. Some people like to do hugs where they tap. But what it does is it really gets the left and the right side of your brain communicating better and working through things that might be stuck. And when we pair that with a statement that maybe we're trying to, to believe, but it's just not sinking in. So a very baseline for me would be, I'm safe when I'm anxious. I could sit here and be like, I'm safe when I'm anxious. I'm safe when I'm anxious. I'm safe when I'm anxious without the simulation. And it's just stuck right here in the cognitive piece. It's not going anywhere past Mm. that. And it doesn't sink in. I don't feel any different. I'm kind of like, oh, rolling my eyes. I'm safe when I'm anxious. But when I pair it with that bilateral simulation, anywhere for a minute to three, And I might have to shift my language and I'll know when I have found the right language because I'll feel my body release. Huh? I'll usually yawn. And it's, it's literally kind of like tapping that truth into our nervous system. Almost. It's like our body. Powerful. It's very powerful. It's huge. I love this. There's not many people that I've worked with that have tried it and it didn't help. So if I'm on my own, and I'm remembering to do the healthy thing because, again, mm-hmm. I'm human. <laughs> that's that's my go-to. And then when I can get to my people, I get to my people. I love it. Well, Kendon, yeah. this has been such an amazing, enlightening conversation. How can people find you or potentially work with you after the baby is born? Yeah. <laughs> um, so humanity underscore hive is my Instagram um, and in that bio link, there's a wait list link. So if you are interested in coaching, you can wait list. And towards the end of September, I'll start responding back to those again. But my bio link is full of a lot of free resources, a lot of supplemental ones that you can purchase that are great if you're doing therapy or coaching, or if you're not, you just like, I don't have access to those. I don't, I'm not that person that's got access, but I need something to, to help me a bit. Those are there. I love that's it. where I am. Candon, thank you so very much and all the best to you and the birth of your baby and your growing family. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Ay, ay, ay. I feel like this episode just kept getting juicier and juicier with helpful tips and frameworks around handling rejection and ADHD with every minute that passed. Big thank you to Candon Phillips and congratulations on your newborn baby. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with Candon, I've linked her info in the show notes. But let's talk about you. What is it that you would love to have right now? I mean, maybe you really want a Hagen dazs I don't know. But I mean bigger. Do you want more time? Do you want more money? Would you love to have more freedom from your schedule and do what you really would love? Maybe more margin. What does it look like to have white space on your calendar where you actually get to choose sometimes and maybe put some things in there that just really, really light you up? Maybe you'd love to have more confidence. 
to maybe veer off the path for a minute. If this is resonating, make sure that you schedule a free breakthrough call with me. Over the past few years, I have learned so many powerful secrets that are not obvious, but are so freaking effective. And I am dying to help you live in a way that lights you up all the time. So I don't want you to waste one more minute feeling restless without doing something different. You can schedule a call with me at allisonhair.com forward slash schedule. And if I'm not your jam and you're not feeling it, trust that. That's totally cool. But find somebody who is your jam and let's go big together. Okay. Now, if you got value out of today's episode, won't you share it with a friend or five and post it on your socials, tell people about it. And I would love if you would write me a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. And until the next episode, I'll see you on the socials.